You're listening to the Evanston Bible Fellowship Podcast. EBF is a community of sojourners empowering one another to cultivate gospel transformation. To learn more about our church, visit ebfchurch.org. This morning, our scripture reading comes from the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 1 through 6. Would you turn in your Bibles with me now? Ephesians 1, 1 through 6. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, EBF. Pastor Tim here. Great to be with you on this Lord's Day. And just want to reiterate our Ephesians challenge. That is to be reading through the book of Ephesians together, one chapter a day for six days during the week. And actually, one of the challenges that's been uh, put before us, too, is to memorize that book. And so I know a few that that are going to be pursuing memorizing the entire book. I'm inspired by that. Uh, I Actually, one great memory verse out of this passage that we're going to be looking at this morning is Ephesians 1, verse 3. So if you're looking to memorize just a single verse, I'd highly recommend that one. But Paul's letter to the Ephesians is all about the unity of the church in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, according to the plan of God. The first half presents a grand vision of our cosmic unity in Christ in chapters 1 through 3. And the second half then shows how to live in light of our unity in Christ in chapters 4 through 6. Our prayer during this series is that This exploration of Ephesians will deepen our understanding of God's pervasive gospel, that it will give us a higher view of Christ's church, that we will speak boldly into relevant cultural issues, that it will provide practical answers to critical questions that we face and pour out grace-filled encouragement on those of us who, in this time, feel tired, may be discouraged, lonely, beat up, or confused. That might be just about all of us, but welcome to Ephesians. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you for your timeless truth. We thank you for this letter written by your servant, Paul. And we pray that you would take these truths, God, that they would intersect with our lives. God, that we would indeed gain a greater sense of your pervasive gospel. That we would be reminded of the great lengths that you went to to purchase us for yourself. Lord, would these soaring truths ring in our hearts and transform us from the inside out. And oh Lord, would the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Amen. The book of Ephesians has been called the crown jewel of Paul's letters. On Ephesians, Eugene Peterson writes this. I just love the way that he kind of gives us a vision of the entire book. 
He writes, Paul's letter to the Ephesians joins together what has been torn apart in our sin-wrecked world. He begins with an exuberant exploration of what Christians believe about God. And then like a surgeon skillfully setting a compound fracture, sets this belief in God into our behavior before God so that the bones, belief and behavior, knit together and heal. Once our attention is called to it, we notice these fractures all over the place. There is hardly a bone in our bodies that has escaped injury. Hardly a relationship in city or job, school or church, family or country that isn't out of joint or limping in pain. There's much work to be done. And so Paul goes to work. He arranges widely from heaven to earth and back again, showing how Jesus, the Messiah, is eternally and tirelessly bringing everything and everyone together again. He also shows us that in addition to having this work done in and for us, we are participants in this most urgent work. Now that we know what is going on, that the energy of reconciliation is the dynamo at the heart of the universe, it is imperative that we join in vigorously and perseveringly convinced that every detail in our lives contributes or not to what Paul describes as God's plan worked out by Christ, a long-range plan in which everything would be brought together and summed up in him, everything in deepest heaven and everything on planet earth. What an amazing vision and encapsulation of this entire book of Ephesians. I love that image too of setting bones back in place, particularly of our beliefs and our behavior. In our time together this morning, we're going to explore the introduction to Ephesians in verses 1 through 2 every spiritual blessing in verse 3, and then three examples of those spiritual blessings found in verses 4 through 6 that then move us to praise our God and King. As in all of Paul's letters, the introduction in verses 1 through 2 includes three ingredients, the sender, the receivers, and a greeting. But what is striking is how Christ is central to each of these ingredients. The sender, as verse 1 says, is Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Paul was once a religious leader within Judaism and the chief persecutor of the early church. He was confronted by the risen Christ on the road to Damascus and dramatically transformed by the gospel. He went from being the chief persecutor of Christianity to the chief purveyor of Christianity, making disciples, developing leaders, and planting churches throughout several Roman provinces. By using the term apostle or messenger, Paul reminds them of his authority and establishes his credentials before them. Paul recognizes that his call as an apostle is not because of how good he is, how smart he is, or how deserving he is. It is entirely based on God's perfect will. This is a prominent thread that then runs throughout all of chapter 1. God is still in the business of transforming lives today through his great gospel and according to his sovereign will, like, just like he did with Paul. At the time, Paul wrote, though, around A.D. 62, he was in prison in Rome. And yet his heart was in the heavens as he sang God's praises. It is a good reminder that no matter our circumstances, like the psalmist, we can declare, I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. The receivers are the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Saints means holy ones and refers to all of the members of the church. In fact, the term is always plural in Scripture. You never find just one saint. 
And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are among the saints, the holy ones, who have been set apart for God and his service in the church and are holy because we belong to God, not because of anything having to do with ourselves. Ephesians was most likely a, what we might call a circular letter that was sent to a number of churches in the Roman province of Asia, with the church in Ephesus having the highest profile of those churches. Ephesus, if you will recall from our previous series, was an important port city on the west coast of Asia and had an estimated population of 250,000 people. It was one of the largest and most impressive cities in the ancient world. It was called the Mother City of Asia and was home to the Temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was an important political, religious, and commercial center in Asia Minor and played a significant role, as we saw in that previous series, in the early spread of Christianity. And so the events in Acts 18 through 20 help us better understand the background of the letter as a whole. In addition to saints, Paul calls the believers in and around Ephesus faithful in Christ Jesus. They are faithful not because of anything they have done, but because of their being in Christ Jesus. Our lives should be characterized by holiness and faithfulness as we live out the reality of our union with Christ. Union with Christ. Think about this. If their physical location was in and around Ephesus, their spiritual location is that they are in Christ Jesus. This phrase, in Christ or in him, is used more than, in more than Paul's other letters. Just about everything in Ephesians is, it is of, in, by, for, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are someone who enjoys uh, writing in your Bible, marking in your Bible, I would encourage you to, to underline this key phrase each time you come across it here in Ephesians. Those who are in Christ are united with him and participate with him in his death, resurrection, and new life. Christ connects God and the church vertically, and Christ connects believers from all backgrounds with one another horizontally. 2 Corinthians 5.17 reminds us, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This simple yet profound greeting in verse 2 then is, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The common Greek greeting, that, that term greetings, was similar to the word grace. And the Jews then greeted one another with peace, shalom. So even in this greeting of grace and peace, Paul was already breaking down barriers and signaling the unity between Jews and Gentiles in God's family. Grace is God's unmerited favor. He freely gives it, even though he is under no obligation to do so, purely by his own initiative. Peace is not the absence of conflict, but the reflection of God's blessing and wholeness, shalom. The order, too, is significant. It is because of God's grace that we can experience peace. And these twin themes factor prominently then in the rest of Ephesians' grace, appears 12 times in peace, eight times. Paul elevates Jesus beyond any earthly figure and places him alongside God the Father as the source of grace and peace. So may God's grace continue to work in our lives, transforming us. And may we then reflect God's grace to those around us out of gratitude to God. 
peace seems so elusive when we are surrounded by conflict and hostility, but God's kingdom is characterized by peace. Peace with God and peace with one another. And those who have experienced God's grace and peace are called to then be agents of grace and peace to those around us. Lynn Kohick has written one of the the newest commentaries on the book of Ephesians. I highly recommend it. She is currently a provost dean and New Testament professor at Denver Seminary. She writes on this theme, the peace that Paul proclaims is a reconciling peace. For the church is to embody peace and unity so as to reflect both the reality of the cosmic reconciliation accomplished by Christ and the possibility of what the world may become. After this greeting, we would expect then a section of thanksgiving as in Paul's other letters, but instead he erupts into exclamatory praise. Verses 3 through 14 consist of one long, magnificent sentence in the original Greek. And in it, Paul heaps up reason upon reason to praise and to bless our God and King. Verse 3 here unfurls like a banner over these verses. And three sections emerge that focus especially, but not exclusively, on a different person of the Trinity. God the Father in verses 4 through 6. God the Son in verses 7 through 12, and God the Holy Spirit in verses 13 to 14. Each section ends on an emphatic note of praise to God. There in verse 6 and 12 and 14. Paul also uses 11 words for Israel in the Old Testament that are now applied to all believers in Jesus Christ, reminding believers that whatever their cultural or ethnic background, they are now one in Christ Jesus. He presents the sweep of salvation history from from before the foundation of the world in verse 4 all the way to the day when all things will experience unity in Jesus Christ in verse 10. So the banner over 3 through 14 is that God has richly blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Look at verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This phrase, blessed be God, has its roots in the Old Testament. Psalm 68 in verse 19 says, Blessed be the Lord, who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. And then in verse 35, Awesome is God from his sanctuary, the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. Not only is this a recognition that God is blessed worthy, that he is worthy to be blessed, it is a reminder of the truth that God is blessed. Fundamentally, God is blessed. What follows then is the ground for blessing or giving praise to God. It says, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We're meant to hear the repetition of blessing like like waves upon the shoreline of our soul. Blessed, blessed, blessing. By saying we are blessed in Christ, Paul emphasizes Christ's centrality. These blessings are ours or made available in Christ. The beloved, as verse 6 says, or, or in him. Itachiria Nainan in the South Asia Bible Commentary writes that God is the main actor. God is the main actor, and Jesus is the one through whom he acts. It is in Christ alone that God has blessed people. 
with every spiritual blessing. The word spiritual, though, is not meant to contrast with that which is material. Instead, it emphasizes how the saving gifts of God are conveyed by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit graciously gives these blessings to every believer when they come to faith in Jesus Christ. The blessings, too, are in the heavenly places, the place where God acts, from where he gives these blessings and where we are already seated with Christ. So verse 3 has then a, what we might call a Trinitarian shape to it. It, it previews the rest of verses 4 through 14 and the role that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit play in all of redemptive history. But verses 4 through 6 in particular focus on God the Father. And they spell out three such spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus. The first being, God lovingly chose us in Christ long before creation. God lovingly chose us in Christ long before creation. Look at verse 4. It says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Here is nothing less than God's eternal decision to extend salvation to believers. The theological term is election. No, not that election. This election. This emphasis on God's decision is woven throughout the section here. God chose us in Christ, verse 4. He predestined us, verse 5, having been predestined in verse 11. God lovingly chose us in Christ. There's that phrase again, in Christ. Underline it, highlight it, mark it. The gospel truth of divine election flows out of the repeated and important theme of our union in Christ. And this took place before the creation of the world, signaling that it is based completely on God's gracious choosing and not on any human qualifications. Admittedly, this is, this is often a misunderstood teaching. We can easily end up debating passages like these, but, but Paul intends for this soaring truth to reach deep within us and our hearts and to result in praising him for so richly blessing us. The reasons for his choosing us in Christ are rooted in the eternal depths of his grace. Edithia Nainen again writes this. He says, God choosing us is not just a random act of benevolence done on a whim, but a considered decision motivated by love and made before the creation of the world. God chose us with the goal that we would be holy and blameless before him. Holiness has to do with moral purity and blamelessness, has to do with freedom from guilt. This most likely speaks of the ultimate goal of being holy and blameless before him when we appear someday in his presence. But this doesn't mean we shouldn't be concerned about being holy and blameless even now. God is continually sanctifying us, that is, making us holy, and we should live according to this desire to be holy. As 1 Peter 1.15 reminds us, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. At the end of verse 4 is what seems like an oddly placed phrase, in love. At least in the ESV, it seems like it's kind of dangling out there. It's important, though, I think, to remember that the verse numbering came much later on. But this phrase technically could go either with what comes before it or what comes after it. I leaned more toward the former so that the force would be 
that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. But either way, God's love becomes the connective tissue there between verse 4 and 5. God's love is the motivation of, of his choice, his unconditional, unearned, unending, unfathomable love. Because God shows us in his love, we then can take no credit for our salvation. Not only did God lovingly choose us in Christ long before creation, he also has purposefully adopted us in Christ as his children. Look at verse 5. He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. The word predestined continues the theme of election in verse 4. I found what David Dockery wrote on this really helpful. He traces this word in the New Testament. It's only found in six places, but he traces this, this word and writes, In the New Testament, this verb consistently refers to God's predetermined plan to culminate salvation history in the person of Jesus Christ. For this reason, God the Father is always the subject of this verb in the New Testament. The early church saw Jesus' sufferings as the predetermined plan of God in accordance with Old Testament scriptures. The whole of the Christian salvation experience has been predestined by God. Christians have received both their calling and adoption into the rights of Christian sonship because of God's loving predetermination. God has has predetermined those whom he foreknew to be ultimately conformed to the image of his son, Jesus. So woven throughout that quote, he highlights Acts 4.28, Romans 8.30, here Ephesians 1, 5 and 11, and then also Romans 11 and Romans 8. But what Paul draws attention to in verse 5 is that God predestined us for a particular purpose, and that is he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Our being adopted into the family of God is is one of the most beautiful images, I believe, in all of Scripture. For me and for my family in particular, it is also intensely personal. Many of you know a little bit about our adoption story, but both of our children are adopted. In fact, they are full biological siblings. And I'll never forget that day when I first laid eyes on my daughter. Actually, she was, uh, got, to, got to see her for the very first time on, on Father's Day. And she was placed with with us for adoption the very next day. It's such an amazing story. such a a story of God's faithfulness in our lives. And I can't wait for that day when, when our daughter and son ask, Daddy, tell me our adoption story. Daddy, tell me, how were we adopted? You know, the word for adoption here was originally a legal and technical term for the adoption of a child and the receiving of the full rights and privileges of an inheritance. Paul takes this term, though, and fills it with with the lofty family relationship between God and his children. Just like the blessing of election, the blessing of adoption is not haphazard or a matter of happenstance. It is according to the purpose of his will. Here again is that theme of God's will begun in verse 1 that like a thread, runs throughout this whole passage. And because of our adoption into the family of God, we have access to the Father. As Romans 8 puts it, we have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We are sons and daughters of the King. 
And just as I look forward to that day when my kids will come to me and ask, Daddy, will you tell me the story of how, how you adopted me? Let's remember the story surrounding our own adoption. Who was involved? Where did it happen? And ultimately, how was God involved? What was his plan in adopting us as his son or daughter? May we be involved in other people's adoption stories as well. We are also given a special relationship with one another in the family of God as a result of our adoption. We are sisters and brothers in God's family and should treat one another as such. All too often we view the church as an optional add-on or a relationship that can be severed at will. But we are family. I don't mean to bust out into song there, but we are family. And sometimes family disagrees intensely. But at the end of the day, we press into our relationships in Christ even more deeply, embracing the truth that we are sisters and brothers in God's family. And because this is all according to the purpose of his will, we can have confidence that God is working all things out according to his sovereign plan. Not only did God purposefully adopt us in Christ as his children, he also has generously graced us in Christ with his grace. That might sound redundant, but that's the way that Paul presents it here. Look at verse 6. To the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Like I said, that might sound redundant, freely gracing us with his grace, but it captures the force of what Paul's writing here. The word translated blessed is the, in the ESV means to grace or to show favor. God has extravagantly graced us with his grace. He has abundantly lavished us with grace, grace upon grace like a, a never-ending river. God's grace being glorious shows that it reflects his glory and character and is worthy of praise as a result. God's grace is poured out on us in the beloved. There it is again. Highlight, star, underline. This recalls the father's words expressed to his son at his baptism and transfiguration. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Grace ends up being one of those key themes here in Ephesians. We are saved by grace. Ephesians 2.8, we receive forgiveness according to the riches of his grace. Here in chapter 1, verse 7. And grace is given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Chapter 4, verse 7. So how have you experienced God's grace? And will you extend his grace to those around you? The same grace that he has lavished upon us. Dear church, those who receive these blessings should then overflow with praise to God. This passage is bookended by praise. It begins, blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and ends to the praise of his glorious grace. And these gospel truths should cause us to respond by magnifying God, who alone is worthy of all adoration and praise. We too should erupt into exuberant praise far beyond the honor given to any, any national hero or given to any favorite sports teams. I, I think about my own exuberance when the Cubs won the World Series, for instance, and it's, it's challenging, convicting to think, does my praise of God, does my praise to God outmatch or, or is it greater than even my, my exuberant praise for the Cubs winning the World Series? As we meditate on God's grace in choosing and adopting us, 
worship should well up within us. Praise God for richly blessing us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Praise God for lovingly choosing us in Christ long before creation. Praise God for purposefully adopting us in Christ as his children. Praise God for generously gracing us in Christ with his grace. Would you join me here? Maybe something a little different, but would you join me in just singing together? Singing together a song. You might know the words. If not, they're pretty easy to to follow, but the song doxology. Would you sing this along with me? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Let's sing that one more time. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Father, we praise you. We praise you, our God and King. We praise you for lavishing us with your love, choosing us in your grace, adopting us as sons and daughters of the King, lavishing us with grace upon grace upon grace. Lord, thank you for our own adoption story. Lord, would you use us in the lives of others? Lord, those that may not know you, Father, would they come to praise you just as we do. And Lord, would you help us, maybe in those of us that don't feel it this way right now. Lord, for those of us that feel adrift, would you cause such praise to well up within us as we reflect upon these divine truths, the truths of your great gospel that you are working deeper and deeper into the furrows of our soul. Lord, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. To hear more messages from EBF, subscribe to our podcast. And to find out how to get connected with our church, visit ebfchurch.org.